0: Good afternoon, this is Aarindo and I'm joined by Torsha on this wonderful Friday afternoon where we are very proud and happy to be presenting the first episode of Influx, the podcast hosted by the Center for Internet and Society where we discuss uh, politics, policy, technology and more. The format of this podcast, this fortnightly podcast is pretty simple. Every, every week or every fortnight rather we'll... Uh, for the first 10 minutes discuss the big happenings and news events in tech policy and then we'll switch to an in-depth interview that some of our staff members have done either with researchers based at CIS or uh, researchers outside who are doing a lot of work on uh, cutting edge issues in uh, technology and and policy. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about about this podcast for for multiple reasons.
1: This podcast is a long-standing effort from our side to, you know, make our work and our output more accessible and allow our listeners a more deep dive into the research that we do and the thought processes that prompt the research and our findings. But before that here's the news.
0: Yeah thanks thanks Torsha. Um, so big big happenings possibly have not happened yet. So the, f- the biggest example of that is the intermediary liability guidelines that was supposed to be notified in mid-January I believe but January, I've not been,
1: 15th, January
0: 15th right and i have not been notified yet. So, so what's happening? Uh, Torsha has been uh, I- investing both uh, intellectual and emotional labor into the, into these guidelines. So um, what are the whispers in the corridor? What do these guidelines hold in store? And maybe a little bit of background on the guidelines themselves for our listeners.
1: Right. So they were actually, uh, the draft versions of the amendments were notified on uh, December 2018 and meeting gave a one month period for consultation. So a lot of people pointed out a lot of flaws and a lot of concerns which included use uses of machine learning tools to filter out illegal content it included breaking the encryption in certain cases and the traceability requirement and uh, so despite all that chatter and all that literature the rules have been pending notification for over a year now and in January 15
0: uh, why are they taking so long?
1: Honestly, I have no idea. I think uh, Meaty did another round of closed-door consultations okay. uh, sometimes last year because I think they're listening to the concerns that are being okay, picked that's up. Good, that's some good. of them are saying that maybe they will uh, you know, reduce the brunt of the proactive filtering obligation. Some of them are saying maybe they'll keep, uh, keep the traceability requirement as it is. Right. They're saying they will do more granularity in the way they're looking at liability. Some good, some bad, but yeah there's been a almost over a year since when they're notified and everybody's just kind of Waiting with bated breath. But
0: there's no, I mean, gossip that you have on what, what the guidelines might contain once they're out. Because they might come out as soon as, like, next week, right? Yeah.
1: Like I said, I think they're gonna reduce the uh, burden of the proactive filtering requirement. It was initially a mandatory requirement. Ah, okay. But I've been hearing chatters that they might make it optional. Right, right. And also, you know, reduce it from a general requirement to just in specific cases of, say, child pornography or terrorist content. Okay. okay. Or so on and so forth. So that's. That'll be interesting to see how that plays out because a lot of our concerns have been around the fact that how a general requirement will harm speech online.
0: Right. Any word on treating different kinds of intermediaries differently because that was a major concern as well,
1: right? Yeah. So, I've also been hearing, now this is completely unconfirmed, but I've been hearing that they might make a different section all for social media intermediaries because intermediaries as we know as defined in the IT Act contains a large yeah, array yeah, of exactly. uh, entities which include cyber cafes and payment aggregators so for the requirement of enacting content removal uh, procedures I think they are finding it more sensible to like demarket the different class of intermediaries all and register it. but it's interesting to see if this definition will um, Differ from the PDP bills,
0: right? Definitions.
1: Yeah, Speaking yeah. of PDP bills,
0: yeah, <laughs> that is one another happening that hasn't happened yet. Um, so, yeah, as you listeners probably already know, the bill after the first version of the bill came out in August twenty eighteen, so three months before the guidelines, and there was. Uh, long period of consultation, and this I sort of have a reason for it is because there was intense lobbying from a number of quarters, both foreign tech companies, domestic tech companies, domestic trade trade lobbying groups, foreign business groups. So because the government wanted to be open to the co- concerns of these lobbying groups and continue to uh, be open to the concerns of these lobbying groups, it took about uh, over one uh, over over one and a half years to really get the bill into parliament. On this in December twenty nineteen, it was placed in front of parliament, but then there was unlike other legislation like the CAA, which was just sort of steamrolled through. This was actually uh, sent off to a joint parliamentary committee, which is uh, chaired by uh, Meenakshi Lekhi, who is, of course, a BJP uh, member of parliament. Uh, Interestingly, uh, Dr. Shashi who chairs the parliamentary standing committee on IT, was upset regarding this. But anyway, so the JPC has started its deliberations, they have, they called for some comments that were due at the end of February, a lot of people did submit comments, now they'll be inviting people to depose before the committee, but we don't really know what the committee is thinking because, uh, and there are very few off the record sources that I have on this either, but what we do know is from statements made by both Ravi Shankar Prasad and the Prime Minister himself is that they are open to uh, consultation on this. Now, whether this means consultation with uh, people who are big corporates or consultation with users who are impacted by this that's a separate question but consultation is ongoing um, as you know problems with the PD people are, are manifold and potentially this version is worse than the previous one concerns regarding uh, surveillance uh, so the they change the standard from necessary and proportionate to necessary and expedient. Concerns regarding how non-personal data is excluded from the bill, but then it's given the government power to access to ask any companies, including social media companies, to act to give non-personal data to the government whenever they ask for it. So, uh, two two major concerns. Then of course concerns around compliance costs and still a diluted version of data localization that exists but you were mentioning that there is some uh, provision in the pdp bill regarding intermediaries as well really how do these sort of two things that are going to happen in the new future how do they uh, impact each other so how, how how does the pdp bill look at intermediaries
1: yeah so very interestingly the pdp bill has this one provision on social media intermediaries which basically Makes it optional for them that if any users of the social media intermediary wants to have their account verified, the blue tick in the Twitter, if you may, then they can submit a certain amount of their personal data to do so. Now, uh, since wait wait, so it's it's
0: op- it's not optional for them. If the user wants it to be verified, is it optional or is it uh, it's optional part of the user, right? But if the user wants to be ver- verified, the social media intermediary has to I think uh, so. abide by that. Yes. Right, yeah.
1: Yeah, and I first of all I don't know what uh, this provision has any place in the, in a personal data protection bill. I don't. Yeah, it should see. be in the
0: IL guidelines. It
1: should right. be in the IL guidelines, and I, do, I don't know what is the state rationale for regulating record, something that should be a social media's interme- internal uh, policies on how to verify accounts and so on and so forth. I don't know the interlinkage between this and the intermediary guidelines because the latter hasn't been notified yet and we don't know what the yeah. actual form of that definition would be but it'll, it'll be interesting to see nevertheless when both the laws are notified and how the how, how they they're interplaying with each other, right? with yeah. Each other yeah.
0: yeah of course intermediaries were also, also randomly mentioned in the e-commerce policy for no good reason again so really yeah. there are a lot of uh, provisions that are dealing with intermediaries but the main one the big one which is the guidelines are not even out yet so <laughs> so those are the two things that sort of happenings that haven't happened but let's discuss the two big events that have happened in the recent past. And one of those is the cryptocurrency judgment, which I believe you've, you followed when it came out. So really, basically, what I understood was that uh, the RBI initially banned cryptocurrency. Some right. petitioners challenged against it and the Supreme Court held in favor of the petitioners.
1: Yeah, so basically, uh, they challenged the circulars. Uh, and what Supreme Court looked at were three questions. One, where this cryptocurrency is money. Two, if the RBI has the competence to regulate on, on the trade of cryptocurrencies. And third, whether the circular, which was the core of the challenge, whether that was an inappropriate exercise of uh, RBI's power. Right. So, uh, it's very interesting. So, I was reading this very nice article, like a nice primer written by Nigam on The Wire. So, he basically uh, says that for the first two questions, the Supreme Court actually looked like it was holding in favor of RBI. right? But on the third question, the Supreme Court actually turned back and uh, like upheld the unconstitutionality of the... the, the, Mm -hmm. So Circular because uh, RBI could not place on record any empirical evidence that trade in cryptocurrencies actually causing any harm. Right. So right. it it's again it'll gonna be interesting how now RBI modifies its stance and what does that mean for cryptocurrencies. Yeah, in exactly. India.
0: So before we actually sort of answer the question of what this means for cryptocurrency trade, we have to first see how RBI responds to this. Yeah,
1: exactly.
0: And so uh, this, uh, we also, I think yesterday, published a couple of pieces that we have been working on for some time. So Vipul Karwanda, who is our colleague, has been tracking the uh, petition and the uh, sort of the build-up to this, to this judgment. And so there are two blog posts on our website, which you can see in the reading list as well, which uh, we, we, we will share. Um, The final uh, question, I suppose, is... Uh, Digital taxation. So along with this idea of regulating uh, big tech uh, through intermediary guidelines and data localization, the other one, of course, is uh, the other, I think, sensible way of regulating big tech is through digital taxation, because as of now, they don't really pay their uh, fair share or share of tax. So, of course, we know that uh, in last years, uh, in the in the last couple of years, budgets there have been new uh, provisions introduced that tax companies that have a significant economic presence in India. So even if you're not located in India, as long as you have an S.C.P., you will be taxed. Second is that there has been proposals mooted by the Central Board of Direct Taxes to actually tax companies on revenue and not on profits, because as you know, Amazon doesn't, or till recently wasn't even making a profit, but really generating a lot of revenue and therefore becoming one of the big companies. So the major sort of development in this year's budget, which of course it means that the finance bill, which introduces changes to the Income Tax Act basically says that income of non-residents from advertisements targeted in Indian customers or accessed through Indian IP addresses is taxable under the IT Act, which is a huge thing, right? Second thing is that data collected from Indian resident, again, uh, would be liable for uh, taxation. And the third is the income from sale of goods or services using data collected from an Indian resident or from a person using an Indian IP address. So basically, the this strikes directly at the core of the business model of these big tech companies as in ma- is in many ways in line with uh, the OECD recommendations that are trying to uh, rein in big tech, because it's one thing to say that we are opposed to data colonialism and we need to prevent uh, big companies from monetizing our data. It's another thing to actually develop sound policies, proposals to ensure that they uh, contribute to the economy as they're supposed to. And I think if the intermediary guidelines were more sensible than what you described <laughs> and... Uh, Uh, this digital tax is imposed fairly and the collection goes off well those are two relatively uh, sensible proposals
1: right Thanks, Arindji. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. And now we will go on to our main segment. Yes, time... and I
0: interviewed, uh, interviewed Karan Saini.
1: Yes, we're joined by the great Karan Saini. And yeah. he will be talking about his vulnerabilities, disclosure, and a uh, lot of his work. Lot yeah. of his...
0: Any sort of spoilers for the interview before we head over? Uh, he, th-
1: was... he thinks we really need to rethink everything. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay, yeah. thanks, Rosha, Thanks, everyone. Over yes. to the interview.
1: Hello and welcome to this episode of Influx, a podcast hosted by the Center for Internet and Society, where we talk about technology, policy, politics and so much more. I am Torsha and joining me today is my co-host Arindrajit.
0: Hi, this is Arindrajit. Today, we are very honored and privileged to have my ex-colleague at CIS, Karan Saini, who is now working at HasGeek. Uh, over his time at CIS, Karan produced a lot of interesting research on, on security vulnerabilities, and he's uh, been gained quite a sort of fan following working on a number of important policy campaigns. And there's also reported a number of vulnerabilities. Uh, two companies and worked with them to make our digital ecosystem more secure. But that said, I'm not really 100% sure of what it means to be a security researcher. I mean, there's the word hacker and white hat and black hat thrown around. So Karan, what is it exactly that, that you do f- uh, for a living and, and you know, you're know, you on your computer all the time? What, what is it that you do for
2: uh, your hobby? So um, security research is a pretty um, vague term by itself. Um, but when most people brand themselves a security researcher, it usually means that they are interested in finding vulnerabilities in, in software or um, in, in architecture and, um, you know, it sort of implies a, a ethic to your work. So uh, When people say hacker, they usually mean someone who is doing it for um, criminal or uh, criminal gain or, you know, like financial profit. So security researcher is someone who finds these flaws, um, not uh, always for a, a monetary reward, um, but just to make sure that the vulnerability that they have discovered is uh, plugged.
0: So what are some of the interesting vulnerabilities that you have discovered that you maybe can share? So
2: so there's quite a few that I can share because, um, again, being a security researcher, um, once, you, once you report a security vulnerability, uh, you are in most cases, okay to disclose uh, what was affected. Most recently, I had found a vulnerability on the website of the Election Commission of India, uh, which was leaking phone numbers and um, email addresses of all electors who had uh, updated their information in the 2019, uh, uh, in the run-up to the 2019 general elections. Um, so, I reported this vulnerability directly to the Election Commission. Um, uh, it wasn't fixed right away, so. Uh, after which I had reached a sort of publication to, you know, get it press and uh, within a day after that, the vulnerability had been fixed. Now, this is not the usual route Um, all ethical hackers or security researchers take. There's something known as a a, a responsible disclosure um, practice. And responsible disclosure means that uh, 90 days after you've reported a vulnerability is when you're sort of good to, you know, publicly disclose it. But in this case, uh, public disclosure without sort of telling everyone how the flaw actually worked, did result in it getting fixed, so yeah.
1: So Karan, during your time at the CIS, you produced this output which looked at how the government and security researchers should work in consonance to report and address vulnerabilities and they, this came out well before the gudankulam incident. So what are some findings that you would like to share with our listeners?
2: Um, so that uh, policy, we've looked mainly at, um, you know, the problems that security researchers and, and ethical hackers face when reporting vulnerabilities to the government. Um, the, the findings there um, were quite. Um, I mean, since I was also a part of the security researchers community, I was sort of aware um, of. Of the general sentiment towards reporting vulnerabilities to the government, but the findings um, which came from uh, extensive interviews with uh, several members of the community showed that people really ha- had an issue with how the vulnerabilities that they reported did not always get fixed. They always had to, you know, sort of be in constant um, uh, pushing the government to sort of respond. Um, another thing which had come out was that people were you know heavily unaware about whether the activities they were carrying out itself even say security research if you're trying to find a vulnerability in a government website even if you want to report it uh, whether that act itself was illegal because the it act does mention that uh, uh, it has uh, several sections actually the one of them being tampering with the source code which uh, i think carries a a two-year sentence i'm i'm not sure on that Um, and then several others which deal with critical infrastructure which um, Generally, it has to be notified by the government what is and what is not critical infrastructure. Um, while column systems uh, were not notified as such, I mean, you would assume that you know a nuclear power plant yeah. does does fall under being a crit- critical infrastructure. Um, so the findings there were that you know there's a lot of scope for the government to improve the current programs. So CERT-N, which is the Computer Emergency Response Team uh, of India, and the NCIPC, um, so every security researcher, when they find a vulnerability in a government website, since they don't know who or which department to reach to or uh, they don't have a security contact at that particular department, they just report all of them to these two organizations. Um, they're not always, uh, you know, responsive and the NCWIPC did have a pl- uh, part to play in the Codin incident. They were, uh, I believe, responsible for um, mitigating uh, or helping mitigate this issue uh, when the person who had discovered it had reported it uh, so i believe ncwipc was actually an intermediary in getting this particular system shut down after it was discovered online
0: so uh, just for our listeners the ncwipc is the national critical information infrastructure protection center yes so yes. that comes under the pmo right which is uh, under the national technical research organization that yes. comes within the prime minister's office so that's correct security is uh, taken as a huge major national uh, obligation, but uh, in in the recent sort of two or three months, a, a similar time when the Kudankulam incident that Trosha was referring to, we had the infamous sort of WhatsApp Pegasus uh, uh, hack, if you like, where uh, and there was allegations that the Indian government was buying uh, spyware from uh, uh, an Israeli company called NSO, and that it was being used to tar- target uh, possible dissidents against the present uh, regime, and. Uh, Similarly, you recently wrote an excellent explainer for the Hindu just last weekend that looked at uh, Jeff Bezos's phone uh, getting hacked. So in today's day and age, when we use communication and I think I think Torsha can come in a little bit on what this means for free speech. But when we use communication and rely on it to live in a secure digital environment, what does, you know, what does NSO and, and Pegasus and the ability to really intrude into things as basic and ubiquitous as phones, uh, really mean? Maybe Torsha can add to this question by looking at the free speech angle of, of the Pegasus and uh, the Bezos hack.
1: I think uh, so in free speech you hear this term thrown around a lot, chilling effect right? Or, and self-censorship. Right. So basically what it means is if someone thinks that they are being monitored and surveilled on every turn, they will self-censor themselves from saying anything that they perceive as being problematic. Right. So I think especially with the Pegasus uh, Pegasus gate and also I think to some extent with the Jeff Bezos is just a I think it's a kind of a doubt in people's mind that if Jeff Bezos' phone is up, uh, can be hackable then our security and our conversations and communications and these are critical times right so our political opinions these, ju- these are just up for grabs for everybody who may care so I think that's a very serious expression concern that you should think about. Yeah,
0: de- definitely. I mean, uh, so just the Jeff Bezos incident, I think you mentioned uh, the chilling effect. And of course, Jeff Bezos was hacked by, uh, allegedly by the uh, Saudi king, uh, uh, Saudi prince, M- uh, Mohammed bin Salman, known, known as MBS. And it was possibly because he owns the Washington Post, which has been taking a lot of yes. both anti-Trump and anti-Saudi uh, stances. So that was sort of the, you know, free speech or just the layman angle. What's really going on? How, how secure are our phones? And what can we do to really, uh, protect ourselves and protect free speech and democratic dissent in
2: today's polity, as Dr. was saying? So, um, with with the Pegasus incident and with uh, the hacking, of, the alleged hacking of Jeff Bezos' phone. Um, mm-hmm. So, very specially, you know, um, specific tools made for the purpose of breaking into your phone, uh, which which are very hard to, you know, just for any person to just discover sitting. Uh, you know, one one hour in the basement. That's uh, not at all how this would work here. The NSO Group is a highly specialized group, and their sole purpose is to find security vulnerabilities and hoard them instead of reporting them to the, um, you know, relevant companies and organizations for the purpose so that they can later sell tools to government, which uh, would allow them to track anyone. Now, the NSO Group says these tools are only meant to be used in legitimate investigations for criminal and terrorist purposes but um, as we can see Citizen Lab had found out um, and so did WhatsApp when they notified um, I think at least a dozen um, if not more people in India who were mainly journalists and activists that their phones had been hacked and the way the sort of Pegasus um, exploit really was delivered to your phone was through a phone call um, which is something which is quite hard to imagine you would think you'd have to click a link or you know give your password to someone for your device to be hacked but that is simply not true um, so with the Pegasus incident the attacker could just call your phone and within that call when when the call connects it just inject specific packets upon which they'd be able to execute a malicious code on your phone and the fact is, after you received this phone call, you would have no way of even knowing that you were affected because um, the exploit was so well-crafted that the call will remove itself from your phone logs uh, to make sure that uh, you know, it wasn't detected. Um, and this is obviously, uh, apart from targeting WhatsApp, it also targeted a vulnerability in iOS itself. Um, so you know, these two vulnerabilities sort of working in co- consonance with each other really allowed them, uh, I mean, Enso Group, to make this tool which they could then market to governments Um, and with Jeff Bezos as well Um, so the details on that one are not very sound as of now because the forensic report which was released did not really uncover any evidence of his phone being hacked at the moment of the report being authored Um, but they have surmised that a vulnerability which had existed in WhatsApp in 2019 which by sending a video or sending even a GIF image Uh, An attacker would be able to deliver, you know, malicious code to the phone of a victim
0: Yeah, and and there have, as you mentioned, there have been plenty of of victims But, and something you were mentioning before is that the uh, NSO uh, self-proclaims that they only deal with governments They only sell their spyware uh, to governments And governments, I think, uh, legitimately in certain cases do undertake offensive uh, cyber operations for uh, intelligence gathering purposes and this is something that a uh, sort of <laughs> long-term project that uh, hopefully will be seeing the light of day soon that we had been working on uh, you were leading it and i was sort of providing some uh, support on uh, how governments balance uh, exploiting vulnerabilities with the need for them to see sunlight and uh, for the need for the responsible disclosure of these vulnerabilities, we, we discussed a process known as the vulnerabilities uh, equities process that we tried to ensure would balance uh, the need for the government to preserve security by exploiting vulnerabilities while also uh, ensuring that uh, as much uh, transparency I- is maintained and that uh, the VEP has been touted by uh, the U.S. government, the U.K. government and various civil society organizations in the US as being the one-stop shop for balancing privacy and security accurately, but of course a number of prominent security researchers both in India and in the US have criticized this process. And this criticism has uh, come alongside just the criticism of you know, lawyers like myself and public policy professionals trying to govern uh, cyberspace without really uh, understanding what's going on. So the entire cyber norms Uh, Process that's in in full flow at the UN and various multi stakeholder efforts uh, have have received criticism. So, uh, and this is, I mean, something that I think you and I see eye to eye on is, is the idea that we need a mix of. Uh, public policy professionals and uh, cybersecurity researchers working together in tandem, both in terms of domestic uh, responsible disclosure uh, processes and at the global level. So, uh, just maybe if you could share some of your findings in both the paper and some of the uh, conversations we've had on cyber norms since then, I think that would be a useful uh, uh, segue because uh, as I mentioned before, Karan is a unique cybersecurity researcher, also had a fair bit of experience over the past year in in policy.
2: So, uh, so, that paper that uh, we've been working on um, mainly looked at the vulnerability equities processes of the United States and the United Kingdom, um, the government. And so it uncovered that you know both um, in the UK, say the GCHQ and in the US, the NSA had at multiple times reported vulnerabilities which they would otherwise not be. Um, you know, obliged morally, I mean morally is questionable, but legally at least to um, to disclose. Now the Vulnerability Equities process sort of aims to provide sort of an accountability measure where if say in the course of the work the NSA or a, within an Indian context if um, you know the National Intelligence Agency, the NIA comes across as you know a particular security vulnerability where they would have to assess um, whether that vulnerability should be kept to themselves or if details about the vulnerability should be given to the vendor that's affected in an effort to make the Indian and the global um, you know cyber space a bit more secure. Um, So some of the main uh, criticisms that um, have emerged around the vulnerability equities process is that um, one of them is that the VEP is not an enforceable policy because um, you know policy which relates to cyberspace and cyber security just cannot be governed um, and this is a battle which has been drawn say Similar to how when you're at war you really cannot control the outcome um, And you may not even be able to control what you're um, you know sort of doing at the moment um, Now when it comes to offensive cyber operations um, People have pointed out that they're quite uncertain and that you know a policy, a black letter rule cannot really apply to a technical um, sort of technical working, such as such as an offensive cyber operation. Um, and whilst that may be true to some extent, um, I, I believe you know processes like the VEP provide a useful sort of um, way for governments to move forward and sort of come up with what works and what doesn't. So while the VEP itself may not be a flawless process, while um, you know, some people argue that it hinders national security by having agencies, um, you know, sort of stripping agencies of their ability to operate when they discover a vulnerability. But I think what such people don't realize when they make criticisms uh, like this is that the government, in the interest of national security, has as much of you know an obligation to protect the users directly. Um, by say say if the Indian government is, is to discover a vulnerability in uh, you know uh, WhatsApp tomorrow, um, they can choose to exploit it to find people that they know um, you know to to find information about people that they uh, believe have you know criminal or terrorist intentions, um, or since they know that WhatsApp is a heavily used um, sort of software and plat- messaging platform in India, after doing so they would they would probably, you know, after doing so, they would release uh, details of this vulnerability to WhatsApp to make sure that now that, you know, they've sort of gotten the use out of the vulnerability, that people at large who are definitely not the sort of criminals and terrorists they want to go after are not vulnerable also. Um, So I think there's, uh, you know, having such a mechanism is very important. Now arriving at. Uh, whether such a mechanism is needed in the first place depends on whether your country is, um, you know, sort of advanced enough in in terms of uh, technological capability. And this is something which should be considered prior to even thinking about a vulnerability equities process. And this was pointed out by um, you know a, a security researcher and and scholar, um, Pukrat Singh, uh, in one of his responses to um, you know our blog our blog post. Uh
1: what, what do you think would be some possible future trends that we might see in the Indian cybersecurity regime?
2: So um, there's been quite a lot of advancement. Uh, we have, uh, I think last year is when the defense cyber agency opened its doors and even this year there has been a national cyber coordination cell, I think is what, what it's called uh, a coordination center. and. Uh, you know these sort of advancements are obviously meaningful, um, but what's also really important, uh, and I think it's uh, doubly so in the Indian context, is the role that um, you know international relations play in the cyberspace and uh, sort of a field of study or you know practice which is known as cyber norms. Um, and uh, how India can you know, assess and, if, if, if it deems worthy, contribute to such processes um, such as what is happening elsewhere, um, given how France, uh, I think, uh, if, uh, if we can probably add it to the show notes, but uh, France had shared uh, malware samples that they had encountered recently and, and that's um, sort of seen as an effort of them being transparent with other countries to sort of make everyone else secure uh, um, among themselves. Um, So I think it's really important to see how India um, engages in these spaces and uh, yes.
1: Thank you Karan for, this this is very uh, interesting and I think as the importance of internet in our lives grow by leaps and bounds and internet is used in ways that weren't previously thought of like 10 years ago, it's very important for us to ensure the security of our communications and of the way we use internet and it's I think tenfold more important that governments around the world start recognizing that and adopting more ethical ways of dealing with uh, vulnerabilities and security issues. Thank you to our listeners for listening to another episode of Influx. Please uh, remember to follow us on Twitter and on our Instagram page and please feel free to send us Feedback on these episodes we look forward to hearing from you. Thank you. This episode was produced by the folks at the Centre for Internet and Society. Intro Music Fish Attack by Alpha Hydre. Outro Music Palette de Huile by We Queen.